Welcome to the final episode of Book Club Appetizer, the snackable podcast that's perfect for kicking off book club meetings or enhancing your solo reading adventures. We are your hosts, Emma and Abby. After nearly two years of hosting Book Club Appetizer, we're calling it quits, but not for the reason you might think. While we've loved making book clubs easy, picking reads that are great to discuss in a group, and pairing them with cocktail and appetizer recipes and Spotify playlists, we want to do more. That's right. We want to bring you way more content than just one book a month. We want to bring you more author interviews, more reading recommendations, and more awesome bookish content right into your earbuds. So, we're going to be moving to a weekly podcast. Yes, uh, Emma and I aren't going anywhere, don't worry. We'll (laughs) still be the hosts of this new Read It Forward podcast, but when we relaunch in the fall, after a little summer hiatus, we will be unscripted. And crazy! And we'll have lots of different authors and bookish peeps in our empty guest host chair. And we want to hear from you about what you want to see in our new Read It Forward podcast. So if you could do us a huge favor and visit readitforward.com survey, let us know a little about what you liked and didn't like about Book Club Appetizer and what you hope will be in our new version. Before we end Book Club Appetizer, though, we have one final book selection. The novel we read this month is a hysterical satire all about a family in India who comes into some new wealth. So we decided to make for our final appetizer, Alutikis from Anjali Patak's cookbook, The Indian Family Kitchen. If you're not familiar with Alutikis, they're little Indian potato cakes, spiced and stuffed with peas and then pan fried. They're Mm, so good. So good. I'm hungry just talking about them. And for our cocktail from the very same book, we're sipping on an orange blossom bellini. It's a combo of blood orange juice and orange blossom water mixed with Prosecco. The color is so vibrant and the taste is excellent. So before we introduce this month's read, recap the plot, and invite the author into the studio, we have to warn you, this podcast contains plot spoilers. So if you find you haven't yet read the book, go do that and then come back and listen. We'll still be here. We'll be waiting. This month, we read The Windfall by Diksha Basu, which takes place in Delhi, in India. The novel centers on the Jha family, who have lived in the same cramped apartment quarters for the past 30 years. Their neighbors are close and gossipy. They'll talk about anything and everything. Yeah. Even a neighbor who wears yoga pants. Oh, my God. <laughs> The Jha family, Mr. and Mrs. Jha, and their son, Rupak, have recently come into quite a lot of money after the sale of Mr. Jha's website. The windfall, as it were, sets off a bunch of changes that will affect all of them and their neighbors forever. Their son, Rupak, is attending school at Ithaca College in Cornell, where he doesn't necessarily apply himself to his studies. At the outset of the novel, he's dating Elizabeth, a white woman in his class, which he avoids telling his parents about because he thinks they'll be upset that he isn't dating an Indian woman. Right, not that he isn't doing his homework, but... uh... (laughs) (laughs) So after coming into this cash, the Jaws decide to leave their neighborhood and long-standing neighbors and move it on up to the fancy part of town. 
They buy a mansion and become obsessed with what their new neighbors think of them. They go out of their way to try to fit in while becoming obsessed with what everyone else thinks of them. Like, Emma, to me, one of the main things in this book is just, like, the obsession with what other people think. I think the way I thought of it was almost like a modern Jane Austen comedy of manners. Kind of Jane Austen meets Kevin Kwan. Which I think makes sense because Kevin Kwan is actually a really vocal supporter of this novel. And it's got that same sharp humor and very, very specific satirical look at a particular community. Yeah, and a culture just like um, Crazy Rich Asians and um, what's Kevin Kwan's latest? China Rich Girlfriend? Yes, and then Rich People Problems is coming out this summer. Yes. Yes, we love Kevin Kwan. Um, Yeah, this novel is hysterically funny, it's touching, and it really looks at culture and sort of the um, obsession we get with money and are we, you know, staying up with, um, you know, sort of the outward appearances, keeping up with appearances. And because this book travels between Delhi and New York, even though I've never been to India, The specificity in the New York sections, there were things that I recognized from living here and experiencing them, and it really helps you extrapolate all of the things that you know must be completely spot on with the culture that I'm less familiar with, and the things that are just constant across all communities and all cultures. Totally. So yeah, like like Emma said, this novel is a comedy of manners. It's like a modern day keeping up with the Joneses, but it's actually more like keeping up with the Chopras, you know. <laughs> and this is actually the author's debut novel, and it's stunningly good, and it's being turned into a TV show. Cool. That's so cool. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Windfall author, Diksha Basu, in the studio after this brief message. This episode of Book Club Appetizer is brought to you by Paper Cuts, Read It Forward's video channel on YouTube. Paper Cuts is all about having fun with books and celebrating them in true book nerd fashion. Every Thursday, we're bringing you book recommendations, games, and quizzes starring our favorite reads and authors. Abby and I even star in our own series, Six Picks, where we recommend books all based around a particular topic. Check us out at youtube.com slash papercutsvideo. And now we welcome Diksha Basu, author of The Windfall, into the studio. So, The Windfall, I love this book. Where did you get the idea for this? Uh, I grew up in Delhi in the 1990s when the Indian economy sort of opened up, and suddenly there was just this explosion of wealth everywhere. And so I was going, and but not everyone was affected by it. Obviously, India right. still has a lot of disparity. But I was going to school with people who were suddenly sort of just extremely wealthy and coming back from their international holidays with their brand name American um, pencil boxes and backpacks. <laughs> <laughs> so it was hard not to see the money everywhere just living in Delhi at the time yeah and then to make it even more pronounced I started 
I moved to America um, in the mid-90s, and I started going back to India every four to six months. And so I'd see the change more visibly because I wasn't there day to day. So yeah. there'd be these sort of four months away, and then I'd come back, and a street corner would be completely different. Wow. Yeah. So, and, you know, as Biggie famously said, mo money, mo problems, <laughs> which I think is totally exhibited <laughs> I should have made that the in title. this book. Exactly. <laughs> I know. Trademark pending. Um, but it's definitely true in some ways for the Jaw family. Yeah. Um, and while it seems like the family's new riches will open all these doors and really take them to a new level, make life easier, you know, it seems to muddy the waters a little bit. You know, why is that often the case? Do you think they would have been just as happy maybe before all of this? Yeah, and I think it does both, right? It does open doors and it does make, make a lot of things easier and um, more accessible and more fun while also, like you said, muddying the waters. <laughs> but I think that's always, nothing is just for the best ever. Right. Even positive things or seemingly positive things. And um, from any kind of privilege or any kind of advantage, you know, this too shall pass is for the good things as much as the bad things. So I think it's never as simple as something being only good or only bad. Exactly. Although only bad is probably more examples of. But <laughs> <laughs> right, but there's definitely a little bit of the grass is always greener right. here. And, and especially um, with money, especially with neighbors looking and envying. Money is such an obvious stamp of now that person must have it all. Right. And they usually don't. And it's so visible. Yeah. It's like that's what it's there for. You buy things that right. are visible. And then even you yourself are, then that's where this novel sort of goes, is you yourself are busy trying to show the visible markers of wealth, because if others think you're happy, surely you're happy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think um, there's definitely something here. You know, the characters in this book, as well as I think all humans are very motivated by what other people think of right. them. Um, you know, it's sort of a universal human truth, but we've got the Jaws worried about the, what their old neighbors will think when they move to the new fancy neighborhood. Then they're worried about what their new neighbors right. will think about, you know, their couch. Does it have enough Swarovski crystals? Should they hire a security guard? Even their son is brought into this, you know, where he goes to college, what he's studying. Does he have the time to have leisure activities, you know. So why is this such a huge motivator for your characters uh, in this book? You know, I started thinking at some point about myself and what I would want if I had no idea what others wanted. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to admit, but we're so conditioned from birth to look at ourselves relative to everyone else, and maybe we have to. Maybe there's no other way to do it unless you reach a state of... I don't know, mindfulness that I certainly haven't reached. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it's um, it's present in everything. Even when they, you know, the Jaws get out of the cab to go fly to America and, you know, Mrs. Jaws worried about, will the policeman think that her husband is the cab driver? And, um, you know, and their son is worried about what this woman he has sort of a crush on will think. Um so I just thought it was so fascinating. Once you sort of boil down all of these relationships, it's like everyone's looking at the other person right. and wondering what, what yeah. they're thinking. And uh, I, that's what allows social media to thrive now, right? Because we're so busy presenting a certain form of ourselves that may or may not be true that we actually have no idea what we're what the reality is. The reality becomes what we portray. Maybe, maybe it doesn't. 
but there is this performance aspect to all of life, and I think that's why the creators of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram cashed in on this. Yeah. I'm doing it novelistically. I should have made an app. Right. right. <laughs> because ultimately, it is this idea of how we portray ourselves and how much of that ends up being true. Yeah. And I think that especially when something's as heightened as money coming in, in an amount that is unusual, does make it so that your whole life flips upside down and then suddenly you have to change your performance according to what you have. Exactly. And is there any part of this novel that's at all biographical? Did you put yourself in any of the characters? No, but now that it's becoming a television show, I really wish I had because (laughs) I would act in it. Exactly, right. You're also an actress. (laughs) I mean, the similarities are, of course, that I lived in India, in Delhi in the 90s. That's where I'm from. And so I saw this change. I saw this shift. I saw the money coming in. But I come from an academic family, so there's no windfalls (laughs) in academia. It's a slow and steady career. Exactly. But Which is what I've known. I love the character of Serena. Is that her yeah. name? Yeah. And um, I thought she, if there was anyone, right. that she <laughs> resembled you a little bit. She's smart. She's savvy. She's also into acting. But she doesn't, you know, take a lot of this. Um, she's not sort of dazzled by the wealth at Right, all. but she's also kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're like, I'm not fully yes, Serena. Yes, I'm separate yeah. myself. <laughs> exactly. But she does, um, she dazzles our our main character. She does. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I think some of the women do that more than the men and whether or not that was deliberate I don't even know anymore, but I think the women are more grounded. <laughs> exactly. So tell me about what what you can about this TV show. This is so exciting. Yes, yeah, great. Oh my god, I don't even I, I well, I think I can say as much as I know because they don't tell me that much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Paramount and Anonymous uh, content uh, co-opted it. Uh, just soon after the book sold, really, thanks to this whole world of literary scouts, which I didn't even know existed until right. this all happened. <laughs> uh, so then uh, they uh, they were taking r- different writers and directors were submitting pilots, which I was reading the, the the episodes as they came in, and that was very surreal because I was still working on the book and finishing <laughs> that up, while these uh, while other people were interpreting it, some in ways that I was horrified by. Yeah, and then one in a terrific way that is who's actually now at the helm of the project, Shonali Bose, who's a terrific filmmaker. So she's actually in India right now. She splits her time between LA and India. And her last film was based in Delhi and New York, coincidentally. And so she knows the world really well. She's from a similar world in Delhi that I'm from. And she's writing the pilot as we speak. And hopefully that means that soon there will be more for me to know and for me to share. But right now that's where it is. That's so cool. Well, I love... I think, um, you know, Fresh Off the Boat was taken from a memoir. um, And... To me, that's a, such a fresh show on TV. Yeah, um, yeah. So I think this will translate really well to TV, but it must have been so surreal to like have your words from the page then like sort of shifted into right. scenes. And, and also, especially since I did work in that medium, since I was acting earlier, <laughs> it is very strange to have someone else. And I feel this is quite a dialogue-heavy book. In many ways, it reads almost in an episodic way. Yeah. Um, and so it's really strange to have someone else interpret it, but it's just sort of adjacent to what I wrote. Yeah. But it's close enough, but it's not quite what I wrote. But it's really interesting to watch. And originally, actually, this book had been a collection of short stories for my MFA thesis, oh, cool. which was much more episodic. So now, while Shanali's working on it, she's actually reading some of the short stories that I had originally written. Oh. 
Oh, cool. Okay. So that may guide her. Yeah, Yeah, I hope so. They're complimentary. Yeah, absolutely. So this book is hilariously funny. (laughs) I was cracking up all over, on the subway mainly. It's where I do most of my reading. (laughs) And um, what is it like to try to write funny books? Like, is this something you set out to do? Do you have to reread it back to yourself? And see where you laughed. You have trusted readers that tell you, like, yeah. I liked this part. This well, made me laugh. you know, when I first wrote one short story, so before that I was doing the boring thing of writing very earnest 20-something women, like yeah. every, every 20-something woman is busy doing. And then I just got sick of that. I got sick of reading it. I got sick of writing it. I got sick of it being assumed that that's what I was writing. So then I wrote one short story from the perspective of Mr. Chow, who's a middle-aged man, and I gave it to Gary Steingart at Columbia who read it, he told me, on a flight to China and laughed out loud through the whole story. And that's what gave me permission to write comedy. I think I'd always wanted to, but I sort of always assumed either that I couldn't because I'd read so little laugh out loud comedy, Mm -hmm. or that I just wouldn't be able to do it well enough. And I still have both those insecurities. But Gary gave me permission to keep going and to write this middle-aged male voice that somehow I so identified with <laughs> as so a young funny. woman. Oh my God. <laughs> and so that's where it started. And that's where it kept going. And the genre that I like the most usually is uh, comedy. That's what I gravitate towards. Yeah. And so I just kept writing it. And then I have a very good agent and then Hillary, my editor, who made me tone things down and who made me <laughs> sort of not make it slapstick and who didn't, right. and that, you know, a joke a minute can get annoying and so there has to be more to a book than just a collection of jokes and so I had the right people keeping me in check as I did that. <laughs> yeah, just make it a little more nuanced but oh my god, just the things that you wouldn't even think, you know, if someone sort of described it to you but the way it's written, like the couch, the the couch cushions that are dotted in these crystals and that hurt when you sit on them. I'm like, of course, this is so ironic. It was just a great, really beautiful kind of humor. Oh, thank you so much. So do you have a favorite scene? God. It must be hard to Yeah, pick. a favorite scene? I don't know. I have my favorite... No, you know, I don't even have favorite characters. I love all my characters. Yeah. I love their, uh, their foibles. They really mean a lot to me. But a favorite scene... Oh, I'd have to think about that more. I might have an answer to that by the time we finish. I don't yet. (laughs) Well, I'll ask you this. So your book came out just recently, and you've also just had a new baby. What was the experience like sort of giving birth to these two (laughs) amazing things at the same time? Oh, God. So when I found out I was pregnant, which, first of all, I, we originally had the month off. For some reason, I thought it was the baby was going to be even closer to the book. So she's two months before the book. Okay. And my husband and I said we've either timed this really well or really badly <laughs> and we're gonna find out in nine months. Yeah. <laughs> well ten months later, I don't know which one it is, but uh, they've definitely both helped me with my anxieties about the other because when I get obsessive about my baby coughed once this morning, then my agent will call me to talk about something about my book. And when I get obsessive about what my agent told me about my book, I'll get refocused on why did she cough this morning. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. It's great. They're both keeping me distracted. I had a podcast interview last week in which um, the interviewer told me she's had multiple female writers who have had babies or weddings right around the book. So I wonder if it's a deliberate choice to keep our focus elsewhere yeah (laughs) but it's been great fun I'm also really excited 
you know, five years down the road when my baby knows that she came at the same time as this other baby. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be fun to tell her about it. They'll have the birthdays at the same yeah. time. <laughs> and right now I'm just really enjoying it. Fortunately, my husband and I both have careers that are flexible. We're both in the arts. So he's on father duty, I think, more than he expected for this early few weeks. And then I'll take over and his career will take center stage next. But right now it's just been really fun. It's been a lot to focus on. Yeah. Um, I'm completely sleep deprived, <laughs> but it's been really fun. I can't really complain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, what do you hope readers take away from this story, if anything? This is going to be such a pompous answer because there's no way to avoid this. Right. <laughs> pompous question. This whole interview is pompous. I mean, exactly. publicizing a book is pompous. <laughs> but I hope... You know, while Delhi plays such a central character in this book, and I hope that the city does because I love the city, despite or maybe because of its flaws, uh, but despite Delhi being a central character, I hope there's something about the book that's so much more universal because it's sort of frightening how these days we're being taught to be so afraid of things outside our immediate borders, things outside our immediate circumference. We're being taught to be so afraid. And ultimately, I think so many of our insecurities, our fears, our and our, you know, even the positive things, our connections are so universal, I think, and I hope that despite where they're set, which in this case happens to be Delhi, I hope at the same time it will speak to someone in America who's never been to India. And vice versa, you know, I hope people who read in India will see parts of what's based in America that they connect to. So that we stop being afraid of, and if anything, we kind of laugh at things more because, I, I don't know, country borders are so arbitrary and we're being taught to define so much based on them that that worries me. So I hope this book, like for me, all good fiction does, it erases borders a little bit, but that's what I mean about sounding pompous. I, I can't say that. I need someone else to say that. No, exactly. <laughs> you say that but yeah, really the story you realize could, when you remove Delhi, could take place in Beverly Hills, right. outside of Philadelphia, where I grew up, you know, it's... Um, Brooklyn, I mean, I just moved to Brooklyn, exactly. and I see this sort of performative space in Brooklyn, because we're all living on top of each other, it's clo it's tight quarters, and at the same time, to live in Brooklyn seems to mean certain things, the signifiers are specific, and so I'm feeling it there as well, maybe I'll set my next book there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, how often do you go back to Delhi now? Very often, my yeah. Family bases. My family's scattered all over the world, but we have a home base there. And I actually split my time between Bombay and uh, New York because my husband's work is primarily in Bombay. So I'm in uh, India for half the year, always, yeah. so at least six months. And then my grandmother's still in Delhi, my family home is in Delhi, so I'm in and out of Delhi. Oh, that's great. Well, Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, God, thank you for having me. It's been so nerve-wracking that I love doing this. Oh, I, love I know, <laughs> it's fun to, to talk about, right? Yeah. Thanks for listening, readers. We have some reader questions on our site in addition to a link to the Spotify playlist that Abby put together to accompany Diksha's book. It's the perfect Bollywood background for your book club meeting. And if you like The Windfall and want to read more books like it, well, Emma and I have got your back. We recommend amazing books on readitforward.com slash podcast. And as we mentioned before, this is our final episode of Book Club Appetizer. We'll be starting up again in the fall with a brand new format, but before then, we'd love your thoughts on where we should go. 
go to readitforward.com slash survey and fill out our survey and then stay tuned for our triumphant return <laughs> in the fall. And to get your reading fix before then, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Read It Forward and tweet about books with us. Happy reading and cheers! cheers.